Welcome to the Humans of Learning Sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Monlin Monica Ko. The Learning Sciences is an interdisciplinary field that studies and supports learning in classrooms, after-school clubs, museums, and the outdoors. And while the learning scientists are united in their central commitment to trying to understand learning, there is a great diversity in how we do that work, and even in how we define learning. This podcast tries to take stock of and amplify these diverse perspectives. Our conversations will go beyond what you see on a website profile, CV, or scholarly publications. We want to dig deeper and understand the person who is behind the work. We'll ask questions like, what experiences formed your view of learning? How do you conceive of the learning sciences? And where do you think the field needs to go next? As your host, I'll be learning right along with you through these conversations and hope that they inspire even more dialogue about what it means to study and support learning. Join me on the Humans of Learning Sciences podcast. Why are so many people around the globe enamored with hip-hop culture? How do people develop morality and ethics through their engagement with rap music? These are the questions that Dr. Kolonji Nzinga, an assistant professor of learning sciences and human development at the University of Colorado Boulder, tries to answer through his work. In today's episode, we'll talk about hip-hop as an art form that comes from African traditions of storytelling, the differences between oral versus written traditions in transmitting knowledge within a community, and the etymology of the word woke. What is fascinating to me about Kalonji is his ability to push boundaries in ways that allow him to fully live into his multi-hyphenate identity as a hip-hop artist, cultural psychologist, educator, and learning scientist. I'm so excited to bring this conversation to you today. As always, the source materials will be linked in the episode description, and we'd love for you to email us with your comments and questions. Our email is humansellispod at gmail.com. Here's my conversation with Kalonji. All right, welcome to today's episode. I'm really excited to be talking to Dr. Kalonji Nzinga, um, a learning scientist who thinks about the ways in which moral concepts like authenticity and loyalty and justice are formed by young people as they engage with multiple forms of media. Um, his dissertation research was really analysis of how um, hip hop heads or listeners of rap music develop um, morality and ethics through their engagement with hip hop culture. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Monica. I'm really, really happy to be here. Kalonji, I was wondering if we could start out with just um, a quick story about your pathway into the learning sciences and the role of narratives and oral traditions in your own upbringing. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. I mean, um, you know, I actually just just found out that both of us uh, had uh, biological sciences backgrounds. Uh, yes, that's right. Is that right? Uh-huh, that's yeah. right. So yeah. my, yeah. So my undergrad was also in in biological sciences, um, but I was I've always been really interested in you know uh, questions, both sort of I guess biopsychocultural sort of questions about how um, how learning happens, but then also um, how that is related to how social change happens. So I think like a lot of the 
questions that I'm really interested in is how how is conceptual change a pathway to social change? Um, if if we think about you know many of the aspects of culture as socially constructed, uh, how can we reconstruct you know our knowledge structures in a way that deconstruct and reconstruct some of those social constructs? So um, that that uh, I think kind of has been a large part of you know the way that I've sort of approached the field. Um, I mean, my story of coming to learning sciences is absolutely a sort of meandering path. Like I had no idea that 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 learning sciences was uh, actually even a field of study. Uh, when I was going back to graduate school, I was applying to psychology departments and was actually applying to Northwestern, which is, you know, where, you know, we, we, we certainly share some some lineage uh, and uh, the the uh, faculty member who eventually became my advisor, Douglas Medine, um, actually counseled me uh, as I was, uh, you know, submitting that application and talking with him. He said, "Well, there's this program here called Learning Sciences that, you know, definitely is is focused on, you know, uh, psychological approaches to to learning, and uh, that was something that you know was a part of my application. And uh, uh, but but he said it, it it has this strand that's very much focused on." sociocultural approaches and how you know our learning is in many ways uh structured by the the so society the culture the sort of social arrangements that we're uh, and ecologies that we're a part of and so that to me was like oh wow that that exists i want to i want to learn more and, and eventually applied and, and um i guess that's history <laughs> it's so interesting to think about how people find their way into the field because it's in some ways kind of amorphous, it's young, it's interdisciplinary. And so thinking about what constitutes the learning sciences um, is something that I think that we've been grappling with um, throughout our young history of 30 years. So I'm curious that when, when you were in the learning sciences program, did you always set out to consider the role of hip hop as sort of a mechanism for the formation of moral and ethical views? Or was that something that came along um, further down the line as you were trying to find the focus of your dissertation? You know, hip hop has, has always been a part of my life and upbringing. Um, I'm a hip hop artist. I, I'm a lyricist and, and, and songwriter and work in that medium and have done it for a long time. And so um, I've always I've been a learner of hip hop to a certain extent and as a, a big part of you know, who I am and my identity. And so I had, a, you know, I always had an intellectual curiosity around hip hop. I wasn't necessarily, I don't think I was always sure that that was uh, a valid course of study academically. Um, I don't think I was always uh, confident about that. Uh, but I think the more that I did learn about the sort of cultural aspects of learning um, and started taking on questions as, as also about, um, I guess you could say the 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 value how hip hop is valued as a academic uh, a space or as an intellectual activity that became more and more of a, of something that felt like important to study. Um, I think hip hop is at this point one of the largest poetic art forms globally, and so understanding the the impact of it, but also understanding. 
uh, some of the perception of hip hop is different. There's a big difference there. I'm curious about this idea of sort of the oral transmission of knowledge. And I know that um, your work draws on these, the, hist- the rich history of oral traditions in African culture. And in particular, um, the scholar, the Malian writer and historian, Amadou Ampateba. And I think that he argues that oral traditions and the knowledge that's imparted through verbal language cannot be separated from the person who spoke it into being. I'm kind of curious about your take on that and what you see as the value of verbal language, that what makes it so different and unique and important as a form of knowledge transmission and communication. Sure, that's a, um, I'm a, a, a big student of Amadou Hampate Ba and his work. Um, uh, and I actually, you know, kind of found my way to that work through hip hop and, and thinking about questions um, of, of hip hop as an art form, as a, you know, as a language art that is a part of Black storytelling traditions, right? And Black music and storytelling in the tradition of hip hop has been studied by scholars for years. Uh, but And one thing that they note is this idea of the chain of transmission between hip hop and the forms of music and storytelling that came before it. So you have R&B, you have soul, you have jazz, you have the blues. Uh, and before that, you have spirituals, which uh, were uh, sung by enslaved Africans, right? And so part of the question that scholars were trying to wrangle with was these enslaved Africans that created these songs like Follow the Drinking Gourd, um, all of these uh, uh, you know, very complex storytelling traditions was there something that preceded that even that occurred uh, and was transmitted from Africa, from middle, across the Middle Passage, right? And so scholars began to study storytelling traditions uh, within, uh, within West Africa, within Central Africa. And um, one of the most, uh, I, he's written in, in French, he's written in Fofube, he's written in a, a num- number of languages about uh, the, uh, uh, the oral tradition. So he's traveled to uh, uh, the you know, various regions of, of West Africa and studied traditions of storytellers. Uh, storytellers that uh, sometimes are called griots, sometimes uh, in Bambara, the word is jali or jeli. You know, that word also uh, has a double entendre, which means blood, right? And, and one of the, the ideas behind that is that the storyteller travels around the community in the same way that blood travels around the body. And they, uh, they basically transmit wellness or illness based on their pedigree, right? And so, um, and this is the, the, the role of the griot was to be able to record the history of the community, record, you know, various uh, fam- family lineages, uh, stories about ancestors, uh, um, as well as proverbs and various different forms of wisdom, and then to transmit that around the community to be guides for uh, um, politicians that were making decisions, uh, and to be essentially community historians. And so, uh, and th- what was very interesting about that tradition is that it was also uh, a musical tra- uh, tradition, right? So you have uh, these griots and jollies are adding 
uh, musician, percussion. They, sometimes they were drummers. Sometimes they played the kora, a, string, a, a, a stringed instrument. Uh, so, uh, but they they were essentially both these musicians and historians. And so Amadou Hampate Ba did a lot of the 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 research. I would consider him in many ways, you know, a, a, a learning scientist uh, because of the way in which he was thinking about the like oral language. And, and that chain of transmission, how does a culture keep uh, uh, certain ideas alive through the transmission of, of language, specifically through these, uh, um, these, the role of this historian storyteller, the Jolly? Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, and I think about, you know, the, the idea of passing down oral traditions um, or engaging in them as sort of a cultural activity, right? There are actors and there is a flow of communication. And, you know, you know, maybe some other people would also argue that written text um, also affords certain types of communication. So I'm just curious about how, what is it that's so unique about these oral traditions of storytelling? What aspect of knowledge or personhood um, do you think it foregrounds that maybe written text backgrounds. I'm just curious about that, you know, some of the different trade-offs or the affordances of these different modes, because it feels like from a Western lens that there's been a huge valuing of written language, right? And even in academic traditions as well, that, you know, these publications, um, the work, you are in part the thing that you produce. And that feels very different than having the stories be connected to a person who's passing them on in these shared settings. So, just kind of curious about your perspective about that. Yeah, no, I think that's really that's really compelling. What are the what are the affordances and constraints of sort of the oral transmission or or um, the, that that sort of uh, style of knowledge transmission? Um, I you know I think Amadou Hampate Ba talks a lot about this uh, the idea that um, you know whether or not you're thinking about uh, sort of an oral account or whether you're not you're thinking about a written account, uh, the criteria by which to judge that account has to do with the uh, authenticity, the validity, the, the truth of that account, right? And so, you know, I think one of the uh, critiques that from, you know, I guess a lot of sort of Western sources to uh, that, that, that they have of sort of oral tradition and oral societies uh, is this idea that um, written text to a certain extent allows you, allows something to sort of be preserved in, in sort of a more stable, stable way. But I think, um, I'm, like again, Amadou Hampate Ba pushes back on that and says, Yes, there are some absolute, absolutely some affordances of the idea of being able to have a have a text that lives outside of the person that can you know be be now an artifact, right? Um, but at the same time, there are do we trust that text, right? And that text that that text also re, you know requires some level of uh, re, you know wrangling with the the the, the validity of of, of the, what's there, and so we don't get rid of that the problem of validity by saying that we now have a text. And then, so that was actually one of the, the, the aspects that, that he was studying was how, well, first of all, how close 
of a reproduction is happening in some of these traditions like how like when a you know when a new storyteller is learning the stories of their the person that trains them in that tradition how uh, is it a duplication of that idea or is it this or is that person riffing off of that idea um and so you know i think he you know he he sees some variation in that and in, in that some in, in some traditions it was very important you know every single letter of so for example the uh uh there's a a myth uh the lianja myth from the congo and it's basically like an epic poem that is almost you know verbatim re, you know rehearsed and, and, and learned through generations but then there's also you know storytelling storytellers that add their own flair to these stories in different traditions as well and so um, you know, he's, he's, he's really wrangling with that question, uh, in a way that I think that we could continue, uh, to sort of pick up some of the, the streams of those questions in the way that we're, we're, we're thinking about that. I, I think that was something that I was, uh, and, and I'm still interested in trying to think about, uh, what are, like, what are the affordances of creating a learning sciences podcast, as opposed to just a, you know, a, a, a uh, an article, like what are, what are the affordances of, you know, having a conversation that's dialogical and what are the conversations of, what, sorry, what are the, what are the affordances of being able to hear the tone of my voice? Like there's a certain tonality that, that uh, sort of oral tradition has, right. That we can, we can kind of hear emotion in the way that our voice resonates and the tone and the pitch and the, the, the those aspects of, of voice are also important. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think about, um, you know, journal articles, which is the way that we move through um, the academy and really a a huge part of our evaluation process, right? Absolutely. And I think about the idea of um, written text. In some ways, I think with written text, it's, it's almost easier to divorce the person from the publication, right? And that, um, you forget sometimes, at least I feel like I do, that what's written on the page comes from a particular lens, from a person who has a particular tradition and upbringing and training. Sure. And all of those things shape the thing that you're reading, which yes. is only 30 pages, right? Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes when you meet that person and you get to know that person and you understand that deep history and that knowledge, it helps you frame and better understand the single contribution that's on that publication. And that's something that you don't, at least for me as a graduate student, I don't think I realized until much later that, you know, each one of these pieces of work that gets produced by a scholar that is goes through peer review and gets approved and gets edited, it's one part of that scholar's entire history and arc, right, of their scholarship. And um, I feel like that's something that's really difficult to to really understand and build a schema for in a in a place like the academy that um, really prioritizes um, the production of that knowledge, right? Um, but we know when we get to know one another and we are part of this community that it's one of the building blocks to a much bigger story that's part of the larger story of the learning sciences, right? Um, so yeah, I, I love that, you know, your work and thinking about that value of history and lineage and um, communication of that knowledge um, really helped me think about that a little bit differently. 
Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Like, how does our, our personal stories affect, you know, the stories that, that we tell? And, you know, I'm, I think about one of the first people I think about is actually Lev Vygotsky, right? You know, um, who very much has affected the field of the learning sciences, especially sociocultural approaches to learning. Um, but one of the things that we don't discuss enough is the context in which Lev Vygotsky was creating this work, that he is, you know, producing this in at a time when the Soviet Union is trying to, you know, the cultural framework that he's in is thinking about what does it mean to create a sort of a more socialized world. And so, so his ideas about the social nature of learning are a more collectivist uh, sort of understanding are absolutely uh, impacted and influenced by the context that he's in. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the arguments that I think a lot of uh, researchers in the learning sciences that are part of the sociocultural tradition are are trying to make now is we benefit from folks like Michael Cole and Sylvia Scribner uh, uh, actually going in and translating uh, Lev Vygotsky's work and bringing in this uh, this uh, historical learning scientist that was, you know, creating in a, in, a, in a particular moment of time, uncovering that work helps us expand our understanding of what learning can be. And the more uh, uh, sort of diverse voices that are working in different historical contexts, different uh, uh, historical moments, and, 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 and with different cultural identities, like that expands the ways in which we can see learning and how, how it could be construed and constructed. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious about the kind of stories or narratives that you might find most fascinating or ones that really you valued um, as you were growing up. What sort of narratives and stories sort of stick with you and do you go back to when you think about um, sort of the, the value of these oral traditions? Is there anything that comes to mind? Wow, that's a great question. Stories that I heard. Um, the first person that comes to mind, actually, um, is uh, Malcolm X. Um, yeah, you know, Ma Malcolm, I think, is one of the best storytellers in the English language. Um, he, I think, was able to use metaphor in a way that was extremely uh, powerful um, in, in ways that were rhetorically super interesting. Um, like I always remember, like he would, he would use like these sort of metaphors uh, around uh, like animals and stuff. So he would, uh, like there was one uh, metaphor that he talked about, which was talking about sort of our, you know, for black folks in America, our, the importance of Africa. Uh, as a part of who we are, right? And he 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 would use this metaphor, and it said, um, if a kitten is delivered in an oven, does that make it a biscuit? <laughs> and so what he was trying to say was that you know if you know African people uh, travel to America, um, and you know live here, become a part of the American context, does that make 
not make them still African, right? And so this is like really interesting metaphor that he's using in order to try to make that make that happen. And, you know, a lot of learning scientists, of course, think of metaphor as a, such an important part of learning and how we uh, start to represent and construct the world. And so I look at, you know, the storytellers that were a part of my upbringing, you know, folks in, you know, in the sort of, uh, you know, Black freedom tradition in, in, in the, the Americas um, as just like masterful, you, you know, users of, of metaphor. I know you were saying earlier that um, you are a hip hop artist and huge part of your work is really arguing for the value of hip hop culture and rap music in particular in shaping and forming young people. And as you said, it's it's a form of art that's been taken up all over the world, not just the United States. Right. And so there's something there that is compelling. Um, and, I, you know, it's the combination of the lyrics and the, the beats um, and the music. And I'm curious about how the work that you do tries to push back on maybe the dominant narrative that gets told about hip hop culture. What is it that you want to foreground about the value of engaging with this culture and in particular engaging with rap music? You know, much of my work has been focused on hip hop uh, as a sort of cultural reference point for millions of, of young people, really. I, I, it was something that has meant a lot to me um, uh, intellectually, but, it was, but as a person, as a researcher, I, I wanted to sort of really like test the claims that, I, that felt like they were more like personal connection and, and really think about a broader conversation that I had always ex experienced when it came to hip hop. And so coming to graduate school um, and then starting to delve into the research in psychology on hip hop, which, you know, reading dozens and dozens of articles in which the sort of underlying assumption was always trying to test harm or no harm done by hip hop, essentially. That, so that was, the, you know, the sort of framing, right? And this was, you know, this sort of, to be honest, uh, moved alongside what was a, you know, sort of moral panic about hip hop in the sort of main discourse. You have the Parents Music Research Center and um, uh, Tipper Gore and various different voices within the sort of political discourse at the time that was blaming hip hop for violence, for drugs, for all of these different things. And, you know, this is not to um, turn a blind eye towards uh, problems in our communities and Black communities and in American communities when it comes to you know, violence and drugs and those things. Um, I, I'm not trying to turn a blind eye to that, but I'm also, uh, I feel like when I looked at that literature, there was a dearth when it came to uh, folks that had a, had a hypothesis that there was something uh, sort of positive, uh, um, useful for this art form for the people that were gravitating to it. Why were, or, you know, why is hip hop being taken up by young people in the West Bank and Palestine? Like, you know, why, why all over the world are young people sort of gravitating to 
to this art form and, and creating within it. And, you know, you know, I, I think I wanted the work that I did to sort of t tell a little bit of that story. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, doing research in, in, in sort of various methods, but all towards uh, trying to articulate and just kind of create more rich descriptions of why young people felt like it was important to them and their their voice, um, uh, especially, you know, given the sort of moral valence of a lot of those conversations, uh, I, I was started becoming interested in like, okay, uh, what, what do y'all think is the ethical message of this? Like, what do you what do, what do you see as what this author or this artist is trying to communicate ethically? And so, uh, that became sort of the driving questions from for you know my dissertation work and and, and the 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 work that has kind of uh, come after. Your work makes me think a lot about um, scholars who have also taken a lens on valuing these other sort of the cultural influences that actually shape young people's worldviews and trying to make bridges, right? Trying to blur the boundaries of like what you do when you're at home for multiple hours versus what you do in school. And, you know, Goldie Muhammad's work comes to mind on historically responsive literacy. So does Carol Lee's work on cultural modeling. And I'm, I'm curious about how you see your scholarship as being connected to or building on some of that work. Absolutely. Yes. I, um, I'm a fan of both. You know, I, I really in, enjoy the idea of cultivating genius um, and some of the, the work that's um, that's come out of that project, as well as, you know, um, so Dr. Lee uh, is an advisor uh, to me. She was, she, you know, in many ways, I could go down a lot of different lanes and thinking about the impact that her work has had on mine. Um, I guess most more formally, she was on my my dissertation committee, and I, you know, I took her classes at Northwestern, and you know, a lot of a lot of my work is patterned on what she does with with cultural modeling and 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 how she applied that to uh, language arts in uh, um, and African American vernacular English, uh, Black literature. Um, you know, I, I like to say like the, what she did with Toni Morrison is what I'm trying to do with Jay Electronica. Like there's to be able to sort of value those, uh, um, cultural stories. Um, but there's like a, you know, a crazy, crazy other sort of angle to that. Um, which is, you know, I grew up in schools that were in many ways, patterned off of the sort of Afrocentric school model that uh, Carol Lee created, and, and, you know, as part of the Council of Independent Black Institutions, uh, a movement during, you know, the, the sort of 70s and 80s that essentially tried to, to think about this question of culturally relevant education culturally sustaining pedagogies the different we have so many different uh frameworks and phrasings of, of that now but uh that movement inspired you know folks like my mother kim benzinga who was an educator in columbus and, and part of you know creating afrocentric schools there uh, um so so i as a like even as a child as a, i, I kind of grew up under you know uh the the 
um, uh, the legacy of, of kind of the work that, that, that Dr. Lee do, uh, did. And so um, weirdly enough, when I was, uh, when I, I told you that, that it was Doug Medine who convinced me to go to, to learning sciences in, uh, in, at Northwestern, he very quickly after that introduced me to Dr. Lee, uh, who I told, I, I remember telling my mother, so I'm going to speak to, to a woman at Northwestern by the name of Dr. Carol Lee. She said, do you know who that is? Like, do you know, like the, and I was like, oh, okay. So, so it, like, I, I guess I, I wanted to say that it was that her connection to the, the this work um, has made an impact on me, even just in the types of environments that I, that I grew up in and, and even before graduate school, I can say. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, the sort of work that, uh, her and, and others that are thinking about, you know, Gloria Latson Billings or, you know, folks that uh, um, are thinking about sort of the intersection between uh, the way the types of text that we that we uh, include in the classroom or um, the way in, in which we think about uh, um, language practices that are important in Black communities, you know, that's all Dr. Lee in, in, in my work. And so um, absolutely, uh, uh, see, uh, I'm glad you see those connections. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to hear that um, someone has influenced your life even, even before you know it, right? Like that yeah. um, work <laughs> that, that Carol's weird? been doing. Yeah, it is so strange, but that's amazing um, that we're also getting interconnected. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your own creative process when you think about um, your own methods of creating oral communication and traditions. There's a talk that you gave um, at CU, um, and the talk was called Keeping Language Arts on the Low, and we'll link it in the episode description. But can you tell us a little bit about the context for developing that talk? And some of the major takeaways that came out for you as you were putting it together, what were you hoping to communicate? And what was your creative process like? Yeah, um, that was, you know, that talk, um, I think what I was really trying to get across was the importance of being inclusive about how we're thinking about language in classrooms as a way of connecting with the language traditions of different types of students and seeing that through the lens of uh, African-American vernacular English, um, hip hop, et cetera. And so it was all uh, tr thinking about, you know, oral tradition in black communities as, as an important touchstone for how um, classrooms can be created. Uh, also, I was trying to sort of think about uh, oral tradition and oral delivery uh, as a sort of uh, creative space to start thinking about how uh, um, we transmit knowledge, right? And so like the entire idea of that is like, I'm, I'm, I wanna do this lecture in a rap verse form, right? Yeah, so the entire uh, 
the entire lecture was sort of delivered in, in hip hop verse. And so that actually was, it was, I, it had never been done. So I didn't, so I didn't know how to do it. That was, <laughs> it was definitely an experiment uh, in many ways. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to test in some ways the validity of some of the theory that I was talking about when it comes to this is, you know, this is an intellectual uh, uh, um, medium. And, and so it did, as we kind of talked about earlier, have certain affordances and certain constraints. And I was trying to push on those different uh, uh, constraints in order to sort of create something. Uh, when it comes to like the creative process, it was you know, it, it definitely contained like a lot of the research that sort of was part of that talk was research that was part of my dissertation. So, um, but then the problem, the, the sort of question became, how do I arrange this into a narrative? Uh, how do I arrange this into something, you know, into the particular style of hip hop, which, you know, has a, it has a rhyme structure, right? And, you know, multi-syllabic rhymes. And so creating, you know, and you know, sort of transforming that into a rhyme structure is a, another part of that, uh, that experiment, right? And so I think I learned a lot about, you know, as someone that, you know, has that skill, but turning sort of dent, more dense uh, sort of research into that form is a little bit, it's, it's a, it requires a little bit learning <laughs> and, and, playing and you know trying to 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 make it work i would say probably the 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 next sort of aspect of that like i guess cognitively or from a learning standpoint was like the memorization right the um sort of internalization of those rhymes uh in a way that it became a part of me right like that that, that i could sort of you know reproduce it live uh you know, I did a lot of my memorization in the shower in the morning <laughs> behind the scenes. Because right? Kalonji, it was it was like a 10 plus minute. How many minutes was it? Yeah, I think it I think it ended up to be about 10, 11 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, part of like taking, you know, chunking, you know, like I, I'm using all of my learning sciences, uh, you know, memory. Uh, That's right. That's right. <laughs> skills in order to figure out, OK, well, how do I. Just uh, let, let me learn this part first. And then, you know, so so there was definitely, you know, taking it in chunks and, and memorizing it. And then, um, yeah, then I think then there's another once once it becomes a part of you, once it becomes sort of a, like at least the words, once you can kind of recall all of the words, then it becomes like trying to like convey it in a way that is emotional and really lives up to the 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 emotions of of what I'm what I was trying to talk about. You know, how do we the topics that we we take on how do we actually um communicate them rhetorically in a way that feels right to us and I, I would say like that this was you know I think because it was so novel I think you know it it might have made an impact but I feel like it's it, it could get so much better if if like it was literally my first attempt at trying to do something like this but I do think like it was it was no J. Cole or Lauren Hill. Let me just put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And as you talk, I think about the, the process of internalizing the thing that you say. Right. And, you know, when you when you're describing um, identity formation or, you know, formation of ideology, words that you listen to over and over again that you then you know, regurgitate and say back out to yourself in rhyme, in verse, that process is so important. 
to actually, you know, you actually then believe those words, right? Mm. Um, or you question if you believe those words. Yeah, and it seems very <laughs> connected to your your scholarship. Um, so I love the 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 view that we get from when we think about your own creative process as someone who is a producer of lyrics and music, but also as someone who studies it, that we get to see and you get to experience yourself what those processes are like that you then help us sort of describe and you know make public so that we understand um, the ways in which young people might do that. I um, I think as part of the episode, I want to I want to play the chunk of the talk where you talk about the word woke and the ways in which it came into public mainstream. Where was the um, the starting point? Who put it in? Put, who put it out there as? as a word that we could riff and play on and disseminate and, you know, basically make as part of the public discourse. So, you know, maybe I'll pull a clip of that. First, I have to ask you if that's okay. That's great. I would love, I would, I would be absolutely okay with that. Think about the poet Erica Badu and her collaborator, Georgia Ann Muldrew. One month after Obama's inauguration, they released a ballad by the name of Master Teacher, which featured a word that would become eventually extensively cemented in cultural memory. But before this adjective was in a million Twitter tweets, it was chanted in a hypnotic ascending melody. I stay woke 44 times. I stay woke, a pledge for black folk. I stay woke, I know. Obama's president, but I stay woke. I hear colorblind rhetoric, but I stay woke. Tell us a little bit about that particular piece of, um, of the talk about woke. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, in the talk, one of the things I'm, I'm talking about is uh, the origin of that word, right? And there, you know, I, I'm drawing on, uh, you know, various different, both journalists and and sort of social scientists have like studied its evolution through Twitter, but then also even prior to that is sort of origin in the work of uh, uh, Erica Badu, who is uh, one of my favorite artists. She was one of the first artists uh, in a song uh, with uh, Georgia Ann Muldrew uh, she had this refrain uh, that went over and over again that went, I stay woke, right? I stay woke uh, over and over again. And, and that like 44 times I, I, I you know, counted going through and seeing that all the times that she said it in these different, in different uh, um, articulations. Um, but, you know, part of her framing, and she's been interviewed about this, but she always talks about the idea of, of consciousness, of like being, you know, uh, having, be, being conscious of the social uh, constructs and societal and political issues that affect us. Uh, and specifically, she was coming about this as a Black woman in, uh, in the, the 2000s when, when this came out, right? And so, um, so, so thinking about how this word woke started as this sort of prideful, uh, sort of authentic way of saying, we need to be aware of 
uh, you know, what's going on uh, in our communities. And for, for it to move then, you know, you see it now in many ways being used almost as a sort of ironic or, you know, uh, almost criticism of like progressive politics or or sort of progressive uh, racial progressive politics um, on, from the right. Like you see um, like more conservatives talking about ways in which they're anti-woke to, to the point where that word almost has become stigmatized. And so just thinking about like the sort of transformation of that word uh, through our discourse you know, one of the things I'm just arguing is like, okay, we need to um, be aware of the etymology of that particular word and give credit, you know, this is another thing that I think is important, giving credit to these hip hop innovators um, who are in many ways developing new language in various different different spaces. And and how do we, um, as students of learning, as students of literacy and language, um, how do we decenter uh, whiteness? How do we decenter the forms of language production that do not necessarily include young people that are making up words in, in, in urban communities, urban dictionary? Uh, uh, is a sort of online resource for cataloging a lot of these words. There are millions of entries that where people are negotiating and defining those different types of words. You know, I, just thinking about um, all of those as part of the sort of learning and knowledge construction of of young people of marginalized communities and then of the world. Woke is you know we we could see woke being used you know all across the world. That's so interesting. I think one of the things that um, I also want to talk to you about is the role of music and oral traditions and um, in in our current political landscape, right? A lot has happened in these last couple of mm. years. And so I, I want to talk to you about this idea of prefigurative artivism, right? It's a mouthful, right? Prefigurative artivism. One of the talks that you gave on Coursera um, which we'll also link in the episode, is about the response to the global pandemic, to the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, mm. which has oftentimes um, taken, taken place publicly. The response has been very much a visceral public displays of our reaction to some of these things. And this idea of prefigurative artivism is, is trying to account for or maybe explain some of the things that we don't expect to show up in the streets, right? If we think about um, activism, you know, artivism, activism, as being something that is just done to raise awareness or um, induce policy change. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Like, what, what do we see in the streets that can't be explained by just trying to think about showing up as a way to push back on the system. What do we see happening in the streets? Uh, there's a lot of places I want to go and start with that, but I think really thinking about, you know, activism, uh, demonstration, uh, all of these forms of protest as actual forms of healing for the people that are taking part of art in this, uh, those, those, uh, those marches, those demonstrations, right? Um, and it takes me back to, actually, it takes me to Bell Hooks' work, uh, a Black feminist 
who we just lost. Uh, uh, so I, well, I definitely want to say, you know, rest in peace to Bell Hooks, um, who has inspired, you know, us from thinking about teaching the transgressed, uh, teaching community. Um, uh, and, and one of the things that she left us with the, was this quote where she says, rarely, if ever, are any of us healed in isolation. Healing is an act of communion, right? And so what I hear when, when, uh, when Bell Hooks reminds us of, of this community of healing is the ways in which a lot of these demonstrations, there are a lot of things going on. Like there's folks dancing at these demonstrations, hundreds of people, you know, doing the Cupid shuffle or doing the electric slide and all of these various different forms of uh, what we often refer to as black joy, right? Like these, um, you know, uh, there's a you know, there's uh, rituals of mourning, there's rituals of uh, uh, of coming together and, you know, being able to just be in each other's collective presence, right? And so, um, you know, Hakeem Bey has this, uh, this phrase called the temporary autonomous zone, right? You know, what he argues is that oftentimes, although these different demonstrations are not creating permanent solutions to the pain of the communities that we're working in, they act as almost temporary uprisings. They act as uh, ways in which, where we can sort of transcend that trauma, have a memory in some ways of what it feels like to be free. And that those moments of being able to speak out and say something about, you know, uh, what happened to George Floyd, what happened to Ahmaud Arbery, um, that those things, that those are uh, also moments of, you know, where, where what Bell Hooks would talk about as communion, right? That that's, that's also another part of that. And I don't want that to take away from the actual sort of political and concrete material changes that that need to happen in our society. Uh, and, and, you know, activists are absolutely aware of that. I don't think that that's a dimension that should be just thrown out. That's a part of what why we're doing this. Uh, and, you know, in fact, you know, taking it to another issue, there's, you know, we know that policy is important, right? We see half of the states uh, in the United States, uh, considering or passing legislation to limit critical race theory as being taught in K-12 schools, right? So, you know, we know that policy matters, but I think, you know, for folks that work in communities of color and marginalized communities, those moments of communion, those moments of joy are the spaces in which you know, those types of social connections to build that type of political change actually happens. You know, the prefigurative aspect of it, as you were saying, is like, there is a social collective imagining of the what could be, right? The not yet, but what could be. And mm-hmm. um, I love that, that highlighting that is a huge part of the healing process. I'd never really thought about that, that you have to embody the thing that you want to see, that the, the thing that you want to see materialize and actualize and become concrete within your communities. And that without those images, right, we can't be dreaming, we can't set visions if we don't know what it is that we're after. And so thinking about protests and social movements as spaces where 
we can actually embody that um, is really just, you know, challenging my own thinking about the role of protests and being in the streets. I think that's interesting. I mean, yeah, um, that sort of dreaming, you know, we don't think about um, that there has to be some conceptualization of what the after looks like. Um, And so, you know, I have I have a number of colleagues that are that are you know here at CU Boulder. I think of uh, Jose Lizarraga and Arturo Cortez, and also my advisor Shereen Vasugi, um, who are all thinking about social dreaming and the way in which learning is a space for uh, dreaming. Uh, I think that's uh, I think that's there's there's going to be a lot of good work that comes out. Uh, uh, around that and in the the future for, for the learning sciences. You know, when I think about your work and how it transcends really disciplinary boundaries, you know, multiple mo- modes of communication, um, I wonder if you ever have felt like that you needed to fit into a box, you know, that, that's something that I struggle with all the time, right? The academy has a discourse um, mechanisms for moving through a trajectory, right? And there are sort of prototypical ways that you might do that. I find your work to be really pushing on that. And so I wonder if you felt like that you've had to navigate that, the world of who you are as a creator, as someone who um, values traditions um, that might push back on the Western ones that um, I think are typically favored in, in the academy. And yeah, you're, it just feels like you are, you're a, creator of of content you're also someone who wants to speak to scholarship and think about how we conceptualize learning and spaces where we can see that learning so tell me a little bit about whether or not you've um felt that tension how you've navigated it or how you currently navigate it right now um, as a scholar that's such a great question um because i think academia has a lot of norms uh social life has a lot of norms, right? Um, like you mentioned also other, you know, other traditions that I'm like hip hop has norms and, and, you know, the griot tradition has norms, right? All of the, these things are, are there. And so, you know, I am a person that tries to question norms, you know, and in, in, in my work, I think that's just an important part of what needs to be done more so from the standpoint of, you know, how bell hooks would kind of tell us to think about like, you know, norms of white supremacy, patriarchy, norms of, you know, all of these different uh, structures um, need to be challenged and, cha- and, and, and challenged in, in ways that are productive, right? That's not easy. Like, you, I think what you were saying, you were trying to say is like, yeah, that's not always, like, we don't know which ones are you know, as we're, as we're sort of navigating them, which ones we can break. And we don't also, you know, we don't know what the repercussions of are, uh, of breaking that, how is that going to affect our career within this space? And, and, you know, and, and um, I think one, one thing that's been a tool for me um, in, in doing that, or trying to think about how to do that is the trickster figure. So the trickster figure is like, you know, a figure that actually is, you know, comes up in a lot of different folklore around the world. Um, But there are, you know, folks that have kind of looked at across, 
trickster uh, figures, um, Brer Rabbit and, you know, Hermes and, and Eshu and all of these different, if you, if you look in different traditions, um, one of the things that they do is through their sort of, uh, sort of jokey way of, uh, of rebelling, they sort of remake social norms in a certain way. Um, but they, you know, they, they're sort of rebellious, but they also, you know, kind of have a lightness to it. So that's, I think, for me, one of the things that I'm, I'm tr I try to channel is, is this idea of like the trickster, like, like, you know, I, mean, I didn't know I couldn't do that. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, that's like the, that's like the sort of vibe that I try to bring to certain things um, and just test it, you know, maybe, maybe, because, you know, I, I also think that uh, um, norms are powerful, uh, um, especially when people don't test them, right? Like, you, like a lot of the norms that we see uh, are norms because we don't see people breaking them, right? And but we don't necessarily know that there are repercussions or what the the uh, um, sort of uh, uh, implications of changing those things would be until we actually try it. It's almost like a sort of Bronfenbrenner like idea. Like you don't like you can't really see you know how a particular phenomenon works unless you try to change it or try to poke it or try to move it or you know i think that those that is how experimentation and you know science works right i want to talk a little bit about um sort of thinking about your own trajectory and thinking about how you understand the field and where you would where you imagine it to go next. You know, let's do some prefiguration ourselves about what kind of imagination do we have for where the field goes? Um, you know, it's a young field. Um, oftentimes, um, you know, the idea that you, you need to look back, Sankofa, right? Like you need to look back in order to understand the future. So I wonder if we could do a little bit of that together um, and think about what is, what is your hope for learning sciences as you know it, if we think about expanding, um, you know, the idea of heterogeneity, that we want to expand methods, we want to expand, I think, the problems that we, that we're trying to tackle. And I think a lot of the recent scholarship in the last um, eight years or so, I think what's something that maybe um, we've always, ideas that we've attached to certain scholars, um, have, I think, come front and center as we grapple with some of the political nature of what's happening, at least in the United States and elsewhere. Um, what do you hope to see happen in the field, either methodologically, conceptually, theoretically, um, that would, to you, feel like an invitation to thinking about learning in a more expansive way? Well, this actually makes me think of, there's actually a book uh, coming out next uh, next year, um, conversations in the learning sciences that's actually being edited by some folks up at the University of Calgary. Uh, Miwa Takuchi is one uh, of the uh, editors, um, and you know the idea that they're trying to sort of think about in this book is is very similar to what you just posed. Like, what is the future? Like, what are the conversations that are going to push the learning sciences forward? Um, and so, you know, I, you know, I submitted a chapter for that book that is actually thinking about uh, axiology as an important part 
of designing learning environments, right? And so when I say axiology, uh, axiology is the study, the philosophical uh, study of value, right? And values. Um, And I see a lot of work really starting to delve into um, how learning environments produce certain types of values, whether or not those are ethical values, like, you know, whether or not that's social justice or, but then also aesthetic values, I think will also start to be considered a little bit more as, as worth studying about learning environments. Like what is, you know, what is aesthetically going on here? We start to think a a lot about more about emotion. That's becoming a, a large part of, uh, of how we're thinking about learning environments. But I think that this sort of axiological, which is, I think, the ethical and the, uh, the aesthetic is going to become really important. Um, and I see it, you know, um, I think people are more and more starting to think about like norms and dispositions as part of uh, um, the way that they f- think about outcomes of learning, right? I think, you know, traditionally like knowledge and skills and practices are sort of uh, the way in which we frame outcomes. But like, I think people are starting to think about that in terms of, again, like norms, dispositions, uh, um, values, those, those types of things I think will be become important. And, and it's all, the thing is that it's always been important to, to parents and to, you know, right. There's all types of contentious, uh, fights that, uh, you know, parents and different communities, uh, are going through about the values that are taught in school. Right. Um, you know, and so I think that those, that, that foregrounding that in a rigorous empirical studies of learning environments, I think is going to be, uh, a new sort of groundbreaking part of the field. I did read that chapter. Yeah. I love that in, um, in that, in that piece, I think what you're, what I see you highlighting is that education is value laden and whether or not we want to acknowledge that and make that public is one thing, but it is inherently about communicating and building particular forms of knowledge that are valued differently by different communities, right? And, you know, you bring the Amish in as an example, but you say, you know, you, the same story can be taught about Native people, right? Um, in, in the history of this country of trying to enculturate folks into particular forms of knowing and in that process, devaluing some of that, right? But this idea that education and learning is a values question, um, is so important to grapple with as we think about critical race theory um, and the role that it plays in the in public education, right? Um, but I, and even in the in light of the pandemic, the things that we value as the learning, you know, what we see as learning that kids have been away from schools formally for a while, and therefore uh, there is a deficit, there is a gap, there's a loss, right? Because the thing that they do at home is not a form of learning that's valued. It's just so interesting because I think in some ways what's been happening over these last two years lays those things bare in ways that present opportunities for questioning that um, and examining our own values. Um, but also if we, if we don't look deeply at that, there is 
a missed opportunity, right? To think about how we do things differently. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that axiology, as you um, have been describing, really is an important one that uh, it's, it's an important thing to grapple with, especially as we think about the boundaries um, where we see learning and how to really tease that apart um, and not necessarily break all the walls, but at least find bridges, right? Um, that we know that learning, particular forms of learning are happening in so many different places. How do we think about leveraging that and making connections in ways that students see that more of themselves and their identity as being something that is also being inherently valued and also formed um, in spaces where they traditionally maybe wouldn't would feel like um, devalue that. Yes, yes, yes. I love that. And I'm thinking a lot about what you were saying about, um, I don't know, the, the, the pandemic and like what, um, how that has, you know, in some ways made us think and question about the value of different types of learning environments and like what, you know, being in a school building versus being in your home. And, you know, it brings so many questions um, around, you know, you know, first of all, you know, where when we think about students' homes, do we value those as learning environments, uh, you know, and, and how do we see those as we as learning scientists think is an important part of our uh, our sphere of understanding, right? Like, 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 I think, you know, I definitely am not one that dismisses schools and the importance of school and schooling and community efforts to empower young people with various different types of, you know, literacies, mathematics, uh, language arts, the sciences, etc. Um, but how does how do we bridge the and our understanding of some of these other aspects of what becoming looks like without understanding more about what uh you know what's happening in, in, in homes what's happening in families what's happening in you know these other community spaces like one of the things that we noticed in the pandemic as you know a lot of teachers notice is that wow I'm looking into my students surroundings like I can see what they have on their wall it was a certain breaking of that barrier that often doesn't necessarily always happen um, and so I think, you know, at least teachers that I'm talking to, like K-12 uh, instructors, you know, are, are trying to now sort through and, and are uh, very averse oftentimes to saying we need to go back to normal or what was normal before pandemic. But like, what's the new normal? What's the new where, you know, what how do we transform schooling to sort of accommodate th this new knowledge that we have of our of our of our youth? Yeah. This has been great, Kalunji. I really love talking with you. Um, Likewise. I want to ask you, um, just as we think about sort of the end, sort of your favorite lyricists, poets, artists, when you think about trying to organize for prefigurative artivism, who are your go-to people that you think about that have the words and the language to think about what, of, what could be? That's a great question. Um, I, the 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 ones that come to mind, uh, Lauren Hill, um, Black Thought. I think about um, you know a lot of the work 
uh, uh, of J. Cole, of, um, you know, uh, there's, 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 I think that there's so many artists to name. No Name is one that comes to mind as well from Chicago. Um, and, you know, her, her, you know, her work is so amazing. She also has, you know, created learning environments. Like she's created uh, online book clubs to sort of like be as, uh, you know, an aspect of, you know, how her as an MC sort of delivers her message. So she has an online book club. She's created, she's, you know, uh, procured uh, space within the Chicago community, like uh, for uh, a, a library, right? And so she's like, uh, she's thinking uh, both on the the sort of written and oral <laughs> traditions of uh, of knowledge and, and and how important those things are. But you know, I definitely think of Lauren Hill when she's when she says, "There's a war in the mind over territory for the dominion. Who will dominate our opinion?" schisms and isms keeping us in forms of religion conforming our vision to the world church's decision she's she's theorizing about uh psychology and, and and the way in which our mind is sort of the battleground for a lot of the uh the sort of social uh and societal ills that we're actually fighting that that, that a lot of that has to do with producing new knowledge structures producing new uh, uh, um, ways of designing learning environments and, you know, doing that in a way that is that is humanizing and that honors all of our diverse traditions from around the world. Bring back some some memories about Lauren Hill. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's end with this about thinking about in the learning sciences and in particular in the academy. You're an assistant professor now. Um, and, and as you think about your scholarship and your contribution, um, how do we move beyond manuscripts and publications as sort of the ultimate way for we as a field to co-construct knowledge together? What would you like to see happen? And what kind of transformation do you want to see in how in, in the public discourse that happens around how we study learning and how we conceptualize learning? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing I would like to do is, you know, give a shout out to you, Monica, for really going in this direction of, you know, podcasting and noticing, you know, the important knowledge production that's being done in this particular art form and pushing the learning sciences through the Learning Sciences Research Institute and, you know, various uh, 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 work that you're doing to sort of think about and record and have conversations with uh, learning scientists in this format. And so, yeah, I would say um, that this is a is an ex uh, extremely important uh, manifestation of like trying to think about multimodal, like what, you know, what, what are different types of knowledge representations, uh, both uh, visual, uh, all of, you know, all of the senses. But I think, you know, for, for me as someone that has you know more of a background in thinking about oral traditions. I think that you know podcasting is a, is an amazing thing. I think we're I think we, you know, I think the next thinking about video as well. Of course, within um, learning sciences, we have been you know transformed by thinking about how video ethnography works right like like thinking about using video as a tool to and as a method to study learning um but then once we 
realize that then we try to write it up in you know in in prose which has its affordances but how do we also think about you know you know using video uh uh using video in the way that we're communicating uh, our findings and communicating ideas and concepts in the the learning sciences i think that all of these different multimodal uh strategies are going to become more uh, um, prevalent. It, it's, it's only a matter of time. time. I think the, I think we're just uh, we're just tied to to a paradigm in which you know the writ, the sort of writ, you know journal publication was the, one of the most powerful tools you know be, to be able to like disseminate knowledge. And now we're realizing that we now have the internet and we now have you know all of these other digital tools at our disposal and it's, I, I just think it's only a matter of time before things like this and, and, and like the podcast and and various other sort of forms just take over mm-hmm. um you're not too far removed from your own graduate experience and i wonder you know for folks who are in the thick of that at various stages just coming in and absorbing you know all of the different um, methods and strands of work in the field to people who are doing their dissertation work. Can you reflect back on your own experience and think about any sort of advice um, that you would have for those folks who are muddling through, you know, the thing that they want to do? I think the thing that I would say to grad students that are at this point, you know, thinking about what they want to do the first thing I would just say is try to notice the voices of doubt that tell you what you cannot study in the learning sciences. Like, I think that's really important to try to locate and push back on in terms of, because I mean, everybody that every person that's a graduate student in the learning sciences has interest, has different uh, um, sort of fields of expertise, and you know, in, uh, in the sciences, humanities, math, mathematics, all of these different areas, culture, ethics, all of these different areas are learning questions, right? There is not, there are no spheres of human activity that are not valid learning questions. And I think if if I could encourage anything. It would be for students to take serious the learning involved in whatever they care about and whatever is important. Um, And that, you know, just because no one had like there hasn't been a, a study of learning in that particular domain that doesn't mean that it's not worth looking at once you can kind of get past that then it's like okay read widely right read read and and respect. you know, anyone that's had anything to say about that <laughs> uh, um, and, and try to, you know, uh, try to discover, you know, connections between those ideas and, and what your contribution can be to, to studying how, you know, growth, evolution, learning, conceptual change happens in that particular area. I love that. I think that'll be really encouraging to folks who are maybe stuck in a rut or feeling like lost in this large amorphous place. Um, so yeah, I love that. I love that nugget of wisdom. Thank you so much, Kalonji. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. And yeah, this was really fun. <laughs> your work is, um, I think, really encourages me. And I think it is 
um, that trickster move that you that you're doing it it's working and I love um, love for others to to be able to recognize that and see that as a way that they can move through spaces that would otherwise feel constraining for them um, that you know for for others to do some poking and pushing and sort of see see where the lines move. I'd love to hear what you took away from this conversation and connections that you see to your own work. Send us an email at humanslspod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at humanslspod. This podcast is co-produced by Andrew Kurzak and Monlin Monica Cope. Our work is made possible by the Learning Sciences Research Institute at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.